Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Murder in Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Previously on Murder in Miami... Having been told by Chester that her life was in danger, not knowing who was behind that threat, Bickerton's fears are left to fester. I have a contract on my life. So I did reach out to the military guys and we kind of figured out a game plan. I would marry one because that would then, they could legitimately bring me over to the camp so that Lamar couldn't get near me. After the rushed and staged wedding, Bickerton would land in Houston, the location of the Lone Star investigation. The feds went to her soldier friends in Georgia, said, where is she? And they said, she's in Houston. And then they tracked her down. She said her knowledge of what the government agents and prosecutors were willing to do made her fear them. If Chester started to sound paranoid about perceived threats to his life, it's hard to know where they'd be coming from. I'm back in D.C. for about a year, and I get a call from Bob Adams down in Miami, and he says, Lamar just died. On June 20th of 1985, drug smuggler Lamar Chester was killed in a plane crash on his property in rural northern Georgia. C.B. Hackworth, who was a young newspaper reporter for the Gainesville Times at the time, recalls how and when he heard the news. I was at the airport in Atlanta about to get on a plane to go to an IRE conference. For those not familiar, IRE stands for Investigative Reporters and Editors. Where I was going to see other reporters covering different aspects of the smuggling ring in which... Lamar Chester had been implicated, and my name was announced on the loudspeakers, which was somewhat unusual in those days. So I went to the the gate and took a phone call. It was from my city editor, and he said that Lamar Chester had been killed in a plane crash, and I should come back and write my story 
of course, it came as a surprise, but I pretty quickly decided that the story I could write just as well at the IRE conference. I could write on the on the plane. So I said no. What was the wash of emotions that went over you? There were two things. One is, and meaning no disrespect whatsoever to anyone, but a weight was lifted off of my chest that I didn't even realize was on it because a year and a half of dealing with Lamar and keeping him at arm's length, I knew that there were so many dangerous aspects and so much that I didn't know. I knew there was more I didn't know than what I did know. And what I did know was dangerous enough that I didn't have to worry anymore about who was out there. But Chester's death and the way he died remains less resolved. That really wasn't the ending that anybody had anybody had expected. He always, always said that he would not be allowed to testify, that something would intervene. I always took that to mean one of two things. Either he would be killed, and he implied that he was more scared of the government than he was of drug smugglers. In fact, I think he did more than imply it. I think that's flat out what he said. But the other was that he thought that there would be some kind of deal cut at the last minute to prevent him from testifying. And Lamar Chester died in a very strange plane crash. I'm Lauren Brett Pacheco, and this is Murder in Miami. Indicted drug smuggler Tilton Lamar Chester crashed near his 500-acre Georgia farm Thursday, killing him and seriously injuring his child. Charged with drug smuggling, was killed, and his five-year-old daughter seriously injured in a plane crash. The crash has not been determined, but an investigator with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation said it was being handled as a routine accident. I requested a copy of the report from the Georgia Bureau of Investigations. The summary reads, quote, On Thursday, June 20th, 1985, Tilton Lamar Chester Jr., along with his daughter, artist Jewel Chester, five years of age, apparently crashed a Piper Cub aircraft near the Chester residence. Chester was dead at the scene. Chester was a primary target in Operation Lone Star, U.S. Customs and IRS investigation, and has been under indictment for the last two years for drug-related offenses and was rumored to be cooperating with authorities. Chester also alleged that he worked for the CIA. Investigation continues. The report concludes, a complete and thorough investigation was conducted. No evidence of foul play. There will be no coroner's inquest held. This investigation is closed, unquote. It's interesting to note that the report was filed the day after the crash, Friday, June 21st, 1985. Here's Phil Stanford. Their report was filed the day after, which is hardly time to have had any sort of investigation. They did not want to investigate this. And 
One of the reasons undoubtedly was that one of their agents, Frank Baker Jr., was on the scene almost immediately. He had to be there when the plane went down. The report was indeed filed by Officer Baker. When you look back at it, it's a nonsensical, really, that they could have come to any sort of conclusions about the cause of the crash in less than 24 hours. And also, I mean, why wouldn't you have a coroner's inquest, particularly given the circumstances of what he was involved in? important thing to remember here is that his trial was coming up, and he'd threatened to go public with a laundry list of CIA misdeeds that he knew about and he said would shake the nation to its core. Frank Baker Jr.'s presence immediately at the crash and the fact that they turned around that report so quickly, that probably gave credence to a lot of people who doubted the original version of the crash and considered it to have been suspicious at best, but possibly murder. Were there people at the time, immediately, who considered the crash suspicious? Certainly among those who considered it more than just suspicious was Lamar's best friend, Ron Elliott, who was at the ranch at the chicken farm in North Georgia the night before the crash. Years later, Phil and Ron Elliott would communicate extensively about Elliott's close friendship with Lamar Chester and the time period leading up to and after the crash. I've been trying to make sense of this for some time, and and a few years ago, decided to track down Ron Elliott, who I found, finally tracked down in Shanghai. Very energetic guy, a real hard charger, and he was in Shanghai trying to set up a seafood importation business with the cooperation of the Chinese government. He didn't want to just make his first million, he wanted to make his first 10 million. I told him what I wanted to talk about, you know, thinking that he might shy away from me, but it was just the opposite. He'd been holding this in for so long. He'd suffered for it, really. And it all came out in a rush. I never met him in person. We exchanged many emails over a period of several months. And he told me about the night before the crash and his business dealings with Lamar, how they had been involved in what later became known as the Iran-Contra affair. Unfortunately, Ron Elliott passed recently, but Phil has saved Elliott's version of events as depicted through their correspondence, which he shares now. Okay. It's the night before the crash, and I was staying at Lamar's house outside Cleveland. Big, magnificent place built over a large hangar that houses several airplanes. After dinner, I played with the baby, AJ. She's four or five at the time. Played a little foosball with Lamar. Had a good time. And after that, I went to my room, which opened up onto the tennis courts facing east. It was raining. My door to the tennis courts was open. I turned in about 11 p.m., was lying there, I realized I could hear a motor running. But Lamar and I had locked the gate at about 10. So what was going on? I don't want to backlight myself, so I go down towards the front of the house, into the living room, where there's a staircase going down to the hangar. The house was dark. Across the front of the house, there's about 100 feet of sliding glass doors opening onto a stone patio with wide steps going down. I slide one door open. 
There's no moon, but I can clearly see two cars parked next to my twin engine about 150 feet away. It's parked tail end to the house on a hill. I did that so I could leave early the next morning with only startup power, glide down the hill, go to the other end for takeoff. I hear the door to the kitchen stairwell open. I'm trapped standing there in my skivvies. Whoever they are, they're between me and my room and my gun. Lamar slept with a gun, insisted I did too. He said it was because the locals were bad and they'd rob you. Sort of instinctively, I yelled down to the hangar, freeze, motherfucker, I'll blow your head off. And Lamar answered from downstairs inside the hangar. He'd heard something too and was already down there. Hey boy, that's you, he said. I yelled to him, be careful, the two cars out there. The cars tore off towards the gate. Lamar yelled at me to get in the pickup. He was coming with a shotgun. The cars easily beat us to the gate. I could see them sliding one side to the other on the wet clay. One car turned toward Cleveland, the other went west. The car that turned west went off the road and down into a swale. Lamar yelled at me to go for that one. We were maybe 100 feet behind it. Lamar leaned out the window and fired two shots into the back window. I slammed onto the brakes, just stopped on the road, got out my skivvies, and told him, go ahead. He's screaming at me, calling me chicken shit. I say, you think you can murder people just because they come on your property? And he says, what the fuck you think they were there for? In our underwear, we drive into town. It's deserted. As I approach the circle with the station in the middle, there's a very loud whistle. It's the chief of police whistling at us. He waves us to come over. Lamar just smiles, says, you got to do what you got to do. It was like a fucking dream, being naked out there on the street. I put my arm over the door and pull myself as close as I can. At first, the chief says something like, you boys just out cruising? Then he could see that Lamar was in his jockey shorts. And he looked at me as well and just started laughing. Lamar knew him well. Lamar just got this fake sheepish grin and said, uh, we sort of had to leave in a hurry. Lamar was a known womanizer everywhere. The chief said with a big smile, don't suppose you want to give me a name? I didn't think so. Is there maybe going to be a little bit of trouble out of this? Lamar said, the guy doesn't know a thing. We were just too far from our clothes. We go back to the house and spend until daylight going over every inch of my plane. Removed every inspection plate, checked gas tanks, fuel lines, everything. Lamar was a master mechanic. Then we went into the hangar and went over his twin and his Cessna 206. The only plane we didn't look at was the Piper Cub, the one he died in. I took off early that morning, and when I arrived at my hotel that night in Fort Myers, there was an urgent message from my brother. I called him, and he said, Your buddy's dead, and AJ is probably not going to make it either. It took me a year to realize that we almost certainly had left the perp in that goddamn hangar. Think about it. If he'd finished his job, the cars would not have been sitting out there on the lawn. They would have driven away. At the time, the initial explanation for the crash was that the plane, a small Piper Cub, had run out of fuel. 
Happy Miles was living in Oregon when he got the news of Chester's death. It was uh, Ron Elliott who called me. After you got the call and you heard that Chester was dead, what was running through your head when you hung up the phone? Well, I was really set back by it because of the way he died. I just couldn't fathom that he had wrecked the airplane. (laughs) He would never have run out of fuel. He knew that airplane in and out. He would have got in it, and that airplane, I think, had a float tank right in front of him with a float on it that showed how much fuel was in it. So you couldn't miss the fact that it didn't have fuel. Happy Miles was further unsettled by Lamar Chester's funeral service. I went to the funeral. It was a solemn time. It was in in a mortuary. Ron Elliott was there. I was there. Artists. The baby had a broken back and was in the hospital. And the kids were there. His grown kids from his first marriage. Yeah. They wanted to see the body before it was cremated. And when they opened the casket, the body had already been cremated. That's kind of bizarre. Very bizarre. The body had been cremated already. I mean, that was totally, totally, totally wrong. Back to Phil reading Ron Elliott's version of events. Okay. After the funeral, I spent a considerable amount of time talking to people, trying to figure out what happened. Miss Lily and her neighbor were sitting on the front porch of an old ramshackle house across the road from the farm shelling peas. They saw the plane take off. They could see that little five-year-old AJ was on board. One of them said, there goes the little princess taking flying lessons from her daddy. Then boom, they looked up and the plane was falling. Lily threw down her peas and started running towards the plane. Almost ran into an 18-wheeler crossing the road, ran into a ditch, hit a barbed wire fence she couldn't see, lost her glasses, wound up crawling to the airplane. She was bandaged from her toes to way up under her dress when I talked to her. Artis's father, who lived in a house on the farm, was already there. She remembers him saying, come on, man, come on, help me get the baby down. The little baby, AJ, was hanging by her safety harness. I thought he was talking to me, Miss Lilly said, but he wasn't. There was another man there, Bobby, the local Georgia Bureau of Investigations agent. But Bobby wasn't there to help with the baby at all. He was running towards his car with a piece of something he'd taken from the plane. And then he came back and they took the baby down. Just to clarify, so Bobby would be Frank Baker Jr., the GBI agent who was the first on the scene. First responder on the scene. Yeah. For some reason, Ron called him Bobby, and, and, and maybe that was a nickname that other people used, but it's certainly the name Ron used for him, Bobby. His real name was Frank Baker Jr. He was the GBI agent in White County. And his father, Frank Baker Sr., was the sheriff, had been for years. So the two of them had the place pretty well wrapped up. I certainly don't have any proof that there was more than just the ordinary 
you wash my hands, I'll wash your hands, corruption in White County. But if there was, the CIA would have had ample leverage on Bobby uh, Frank Jr. to get him involved in this plot to kill Lamar, which is what I think actually happened. Well, I do have to point out that C.B. Hackworth does dispute that Bobby, you know, Frank Baker Jr. would be capable of something like that, that they were friends and that he viewed him as a stand-up guy. How he ended up at the crash, (laughs) almost as the plane was going down. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear that one. And Ron is certainly entitled to his opinion. This was Ron Elliott's remembrance. Artis's father, Mr. Lawrence, was there within 30 seconds of the crash, and Bobby was driving up just as her father arrived. The third person was Miss Lily from across the highway. He told me he was on the front porch of the house Lamar built for him and his wife, reading the paper when he heard the plane take off. He heard the boom and looked up and it was coming down. He jumped into his car, raced to the site. The other guy who helped him was already there. I have to say, Mr. Lawrence told me later he didn't see Bobby put anything in his car. However, it was because he'd already crawled into the plane and was trying to get AJ down. It was Miss Lily who saw that. Happy Miles says Ron Elliott had also spoken to him about Baker. Well, he told me that Baker had been bragging the night before that he was going to get Lamar in the bar the night before saying how he was going to get the son of a bitch. And then the next day, Lamar was dead. And he was the guy who was the first on the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. 
Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I requested a copy of the accident report from the National Transportation Safety Board. The final report finding reads that, quote, virtually no fuel was found in the tanks, lines, and carburetor. No pre-impact part failure or malfunction was found. So the official reason for the crash was basically that the Piper Cub ran out of fuel, something that Happy Miles, also a seasoned pilot, still finds preposterous. First off, he would have never crashed an airplane. You know, I mean, he was too good a pilot. Even if it were out of fuel, could a pilot of Chester's stature have landed that in the fields without crashing? Oh, yeah. I mean, in the field, in the trees, you could have put it anywhere and and walked away. It just it didn't add up. That airplane landed so slow, probably down around 30 miles an hour. It wasn't heavily loaded, just him and his daughter. And there were fields all over the place. There were a lot of trees and hills and stuff, but he would have landed it no problem. No problem. I'm 100% sure of that. The ran-out-of-fuel theory also clashes with an eyewitness account shared with Bill Stanford. Eight years ago or so, when I started my own investigation into this, I went down to northern Georgia. One of the places I stopped was Cleveland. Ended up talking to a manager at the local hardware store. He told me he'd been on the volunteer fire department at that time, what we now call a first responder. He was out there shortly after the plane went down. And he said, plane was upside down. And he said, no, plane wasn't out of fuel. It was dripping fuel from the wings. 
I've obtained multiple photos of the crashed plane. It is indeed lying upside down. The nose of the Piper Cub appears severely damaged, crumpled and torn by what one would imagine was extreme force or speed. So if the official explanation was false and the plane was sabotaged, what exactly did Ron Elliott think caused the crash? Yeah, I asked Ron about that. Here's what he said. He said that it had to be a spring-loaded cable cutter electronically activated by a ground signal that would have disconnected the plane's elevator control, causing the plane to pitch nose down, which is what it did. But whatever it was, he said three people heard a loud boom. Miss Lilly, her friend, selling peas with her across the road, and Artis's father. Ron said he was convinced that there would have been evidence of some explosive device in the plane. That's interesting, Phil, because Ron mentions Miss Lilly saying that Baker ran to the crash and then ran back to put something in his car. Yeah, Ron takes that, and I do too, as evidence that this explosive device was being removed from the wreckage of the plane. So what happened to the plane, the wreckage? Ron learned that the airplane had been taken to a small town called Tekoa. It's about 30 miles east of Cleveland and put in a locked and sealed hangar there. And he agreed to buy it, made a deal to buy it from the insurance company. But first he said he wanted to see it. So he went over there, cut the lock, walked inside, and the plane was gone. And all that was left was an oil spot on the floor. How did the crash ultimately impact the Lone Star investigation? Well, it pretty much ended Lamar's gray mail defense in any case. And that's what everyone else was relying on. There were about 10 other defendants besides Lamar and Ron. And the other 10 eventually made their deals with the IRS, with the government. That left Ron. Of course, they approached him and, and asked him to be essentially a government witness. And he said that that is not what he wanted to do. He, he knew that it would be an endless trek from one courtroom to the other, him testifying as the government wished against other drug dealers. And he said no. He ended up being convicted and sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. But before he went, he figured he had some unfinished business with Bobby, that GBI agent who'd been on the scene of the crash almost before the plane hit the ground. The way Elliot saw it, there's no way he couldn't have been involved one way or another. Okay. I remember hearing that Bobby hung out in what was a pretty nice bar in Helen. I was about to start trial then and I wanted to finish things up in case I got convicted or maybe killed. He was alone in the bar. He recognized me when I sat down. He glared at me and moved over a seat. I moved over a seat next to him. He told the barkeep I didn't want anything. I told her drinks were on the house and the lawman would pay. We stared at each other and he told me to leave and I said something high class like, go fuck yourself, boy. One thing led to another. People started looking and listening. I stood up and told him in a loud voice to bring his candy ass outside and maybe we could settle it. He just calmly drew 
a short barrel 357 from his shoulder holster, cocked it and put it in my face. He told me if I ever spoke to him again, he'd kill me. I said in a loud voice, you mean you'll kill again? I told him the pieces were all in place. It would be worth my life to have him just go ahead with all these people watching, pull the trigger. And then I got weak. I, I, I thought he was going to do it. I wanted it to be in my back. End of story. I never saw him again. So after that, I take it Ron Elliott went off to prison. Yeah. He wrote about that in his emails, too. I did 15 years in 12 different federal prisons and 26 county jails. You know what diesel therapy is? Quick aside, diesel therapy refers to a form of punishing prisoners with relentless transfers. The term refers to the diesel fuel used in prisoner transport vehicles. I went to prison for something that not only did I not do, I didn't even know what happened. The IRS fully intended to force my cooperation. It was the IRS we had our problems with, not the DEA or Customs or certainly the CIA. We had our deals with them. As long as the money didn't come ashore into the United States, everything was copacetic. That's where Lamar fucked up. He started bringing his money in the country, and the IRS wanted its share. If it were the IRS who was making all of this trouble for Chester, why couldn't the CIA just get the case dropped for whatever reason, national security reason. It's not like they hadn't intervened in cases like this before. Yeah, and Ron told me that at one point, Morgan Cherry came to Lamar and told him that he had tried to get the case dropped, but the IRS wouldn't permit it. Which explains why Chester was desperate enough to think that the CIA had sent you to help him. Well, it's hard to know what exactly the secret agency was thinking at any given moment, but Lamar had made such a big public fuss about it, although it had just gone to come out in in a couple smaller newspapers in the South, that if they had publicly declared that his case had to be dropped for national security reasons, they would be admitting to what he had already said, that he'd flown 200 loads into the country with the knowledge of the CIA and DEA. So in a way, Chester opening his mouth so much could have pushed himself in a corner. Yeah, yeah. He made it impossible for the CIA to help him. (laughs) Yeah, he may have uh, overstepped himself. Well, let me ask you this, because Chester kept saying that what he had, the information he knew, was going to shake the U.S. government to its core. Did you ever find out, or did Ron Elliott ever have any idea of what he claimed was his ace in the hole? Yeah, Ron told me that Chester told him that he had information that the CIA was involved in a, the Letalier murder, Chilean diplomat who was killed in a car bomb, by a car bomb in Washington, D.C. in 1973. Ron didn't ask any more questions about it. Ron said himself he thought it was pretty far out, even for Chester. But who knows, it might have been true. I don't know. As for C.B. Hackworth, he doesn't believe avoiding a crash would have necessarily led to a happier ending for Chester, at least in terms of his legal woes. 
Do you think there's a chance that with representation, like Bobby Lee Cook, he might have beaten the rap had it gone to trial? It's possible. Federal prosecutors don't indict people that they are not positive they can convict. There's a whole bunch of people who get investigated federally and never prosecuted because there's not enough evidence. So they feel like they've got a ton of evidence if they indict anybody. Their conviction rate is like 99%. Could Lamar Chester have been the 1% that beats them? He had been doing a pretty good job of putting them on the defensive for the life of this case and, as it turned out, for the rest of his life. But on some level, do you think that he was just postponing the inevitable? I think that may have been reality. My feeling is that it was not what was in his mind. I think what was in his mind was some kind of strategy. I don't think he intended to be dead. I don't think he intended to be in jail. I think he intended somehow to come out on top of that situation. And no, I really don't think that he planned to win at trial because of his number one statement that he would never be allowed to testify. C.B. Hackworth remains troubled by an interaction he had with Chester shortly before he was killed in that crash. He was disheveled the last time I saw him. It was at the farm. He was outside working on a plane. And this was well before the crash, at least two weeks before the crash. But again, with the trial approaching. And he was visibly disheveled to my way of thinking, and more so than just from working outside. And for some reason, I cannot remember why, but I do remember I'd seen him the day before and he was wearing the same shirt. And that just, you know, I've worn the same shirt two days in a row, but I'd never seen Lamar do it. I remember him as a good dresser. I have not really been a snappy dresser myself, but I know one when I see one. He dressed well, normally. But I, I thought at the time that well, the trial's coming up, and maybe all these hearings and everything may be taking a toll on him. And then in the years since the crash, I've always thought back to that day and to the fact he was wearing that same shirt two days in a row. Would you ever conceive that he could have been suicidal? I did consider that, and do consider that. It's one of the scenarios that I run through my mind every time I think of this. And there is part of me that believes that Lamar was narcissistic enough that he would rather be dead than to have to go to federal prison. It wasn't merely being confined. It was having authority over him. That's what he was resisting this entire time. So I do think he was afraid of losing. Would he have ever put his daughter in harm's way? Well... I don't believe that Lamar Chester would commit suicide in a plane crash with his daughter in the plane with him. So I really tend to rule out suicide.
Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I traveled with C.B. Hackworth to Cleveland, Georgia, in July of 22, and we spoke to a neighbor who'd witnessed the crash nearly four decades ago while farming the property adjacent to Chester's. It was a dramatic crash. How old would you have been around the time of the crash? Oh, I was probably 20, 22, something like that. Anyway... 
I'd be on tractors and stuff out here in Lamar. He would, you know, dart down at you with his plane. He was pretty good. I mean, he would get down closer to the power line. He'd kind of scare you, especially if you didn't see him coming and slip up on you like And it was later this in the evening. Well, it was probably 5, 36 o'clock. Well, I was on my forward. And we'd been hauling this hay up all evening. And he'd been flying around, flying around that plane. And whenever I come out, it was dirt road then. When I come out with my four-wheeler, I look back up. And if you're looking right toward those rocks right in there, he had that plane like it was just sitting, just like this. Turned up sideways, I mean completely sideways. And it was just like sitting there. And if I'd have watched it for 10 more seconds, I'd have probably seen it go down. And it was like just sitting there. And then an hour or two later, we found out he'd crashed. That was the crash. Yeah. But he had that plane turned up just, I mean, he was just barely moving. And that's where he crashed right there. He crashed on this side of the main driveway going into the rock quarry. Sometimes there's air pockets up that hollow. And I wonder if he got in the air pocket the way he had it laid up and it just went straight down. But then, he told us this two weeks before that, the next week, he was gonna testify before the grand jury or something in Gainesville about drugs, trafficking drugs or something. He was gonna testify. The week or two before, he did say he was gonna bring some people down. You know, I, I can't, I ain't got it on recording or anything, but I do remember him saying that. I don't know what all that was about. But it was so strange that the first person on the scene was the top GBI man. I mean, that's just strange. What was the take pretty much after the plane crashed? Did people have different theories? You know, a small town like his, there's always rumors, you know, but they never found no gunshots, no nothing, you know. Someone said he committed suicide, but he thought too much of that daughter to have done that. He thought way too much of that daughter to have even considered doing that. That's how I always felt. The sprawling property Chester named My Goal Farm has now been divided, but still sports an impressive amount of land and the imposing A-frame estate he built. After a series of subsequent owners, the Cleveland compound was willed to a church and is now a religious retreat. All, all this is documented as church land now. There'll never be no more taxes paid on it. Never be no more taxes paid. Just puts more burden on yeah. us regular taxpayers. Exactly. Oddly fitting in that the IRS was the driving force behind Operation Lone Star. But all these years later, Chester and the crash are still salacious talk in this small town and not in any small part due to the salacious talk of the man himself. Well, you know, small towns, whenever he first bought this, rumors out that, you know, he was probably a drug man, but but when he come, he spent a lot of money up here. When he first come, he spent a lot of money. And sometimes he would get to bragging a little bit. He, he, <laughs> you know, and he'd tell me there was four or five different places that he could land down there in Columbia. That was the only place he'd land. He said he worked for the CIA at one time. That's where he learned his, his connections. And the only other thing he bragged about is when Reagan was making a speech in Miami <laughs> that he was flying over the top of him. He could have dropped a package right in on the podium. 
But it's hard to stress just how out of the realm of reality all of this would have seemed at the time. Here's Phil Stanford. Lamar was killed in June of 1985. The public was really not aware of any of the guns for drug business that our government was involved in in Central America. Of course, in 1972, Alfred McCoy, who's now recognized as the authority on the subject, he's a, a professor at the University of Wisconsin, wrote in his book, Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, about the CIA's involvement with drug lords in Laos and in Vietnam and in the Far East. But even that was sort of dangerous knowledge. It wasn't acknowledged by the proper people in the proper newspapers. More than a year after Lamar's plane went down, a plane delivering weapons, they're being kicked out of the plane, boxes tied to parachutes, over Nicaragua, I think it was, got shot down. And the surviving crew member, Hassenfuss, was captured and he went public saying, yeah, <laughs> it was a CIA operation. And that made the news, of course, it couldn't be avoided. John Kerry in the Senate held hearings on the Iran-Contra matter. But you have to remember that when Lamar was killed, which I think he was, it was a, a deep, dark secret. Gosh, had Lamar Chester stretched his life, you know, his legal proceedings a few years, it would have had a very different ending, probably. Yeah, but when the crash occurred in June of 85, and the New York Times wrote a piece about how this indicted drug smuggler was killed in a plane crash, they somehow did not mention his claims that he did it for the CIA. But given what has now been exposed, acknowledged, and proven, Chester's claims are less far-fetched today than they were 40 years ago. Documentarian and authority on national security and intelligence, Joseph Trento, has been covering the CIA for decades and has written multiple books on the subject, including The Secret History of the CIA and Prelude to Terror, The Rogue CIA and the Legacy of America's Private Intelligence Network. Both cover the CIA's very documented involvement with overseas drug trafficking. Well, this goes back a long way, but really it reached its height in the 60s and 70s when we were using drugs to fund things that Congress wouldn't approve, when Congress wouldn't approve money for certain CIA operations. And it's not that Congress didn't know about it. It was sort of done as a wink and a nod where the CIA would work with drug dealers, would work with even law enforcement and allow, especially in Asia, particularly in Vietnam, where we were funding operations using drug money and using drugs. And that's how we paid uh, guerrillas to do various work for us. And then it reached its awful height in Central America when we were funding Commander Zero. Commander Zero was a, a, a character who was fighting a war in Nicaragua for us. And in order to get arms, in order to pay for them, the CIA's drug dealers. This was notorious because it had been written about and people had done movies about it, but we'd hire freelancers to fly planes back and forth to Central America to bring the drugs, deliver the drugs in the United States or along the border. And it was one of the ugliest parts of the CIA's role in, in this sort of activity. 
Trento also contends that this sort of illicit activity wouldn't have been privy to other government agencies or law enforcement, especially during the years we're covering. It's very true. For example, the DEA was going absolutely out of its mind trying to control drugs coming into Miami and other areas. But they were well aware that the agency was involved in this activity. And there was nothing they could do about it. I mean, the show Narcos on Netflix, that whole very sad story of how the narcotics trafficking went in the 80s and 90s was absolutely accurate. And that's how it went down. So what was the CIA doing in particular in terms of the 1970s and 1980s that sticks out to you in terms of Well, Latin America, this was a big area. I mean, this was Chile, 73. We were trying to overthrow uh, Allende that time period. We were doing stuff all over Latin America, trying to install our own people. Working with Noriega at this point. Noriega was one of ours. And he was he was controlling the drug trade in Central America. The agency was in business with these guys. They thought it was to their advantage. Turned out not to be in the end, but they thought it was. They worked with dictators like the head of Nicaragua, who was this awful guy, who was completely controlled by the agency. But he was just destroying his country. It's interesting with Nicaragua because Lamar Chester, who was the former Eastern Airlines pilot and self-acknowledged dope smuggler, he claimed the two had been running guns into Nicaragua in the 70s. Um, That makes sense. That makes But remember who we were backing in the 70s. Who was in charge of Nicaragua in the 1970s? Somoza. Somoza. Chester also claimed to have flown his son into Miami and back out. Oh, now that makes sense. Let me tell you about Somoza. Somoza used to come into Miami constantly and get drunk and pick up women. I mean, he was notorious, the family. That kind of thing does make sense. I think I wrote about that in one of my books, actually. Somoza was notorious. They all love coming to Miami. I mean, that was the big thing. And what would happen is the CIA people here would entertain him when they were visiting. Sometimes the chief of operations or even the director of the CIA would come down and, you know, have a drink or dinner with him, pat him on the head for being cooperative. That was not unusual. Wow. Lamar Chester mounted a gray male defense when he was indicted, claimed that he had been flying missions for the CIA into Nicaragua in 1974. Right. I understand. And I have no doubt that he did. What I do doubt is that he was doing it directly for the CIA. My guess is, what was the guy's name? Morgan? Morgan uh, Cherry. Morgan Cherry. I tried to find that name, do some research on it after you sent me the email, and I have not been able to find him. My guess is he, unfortunately, probably did not know who he was actually dealing with. He didn't. The thought that Chester wasn't exactly sure who his connection actually was does align with his mistaken belief that Phil Stanford was a CIA operative and would have weakened his gray male defense. When did he make the defense? When did you first go public with this? 1982, 83, 80. Yeah, that would have been early on because Iran-Contra really broke after that. The way you use gray male, by the way, is you threaten. If they threaten to bring in a diabetes, threaten to expose them like playing poker. But it's not done through lawyers. It's done, in other words, he'll say to the FBI, say, I need to see your boss. And then once the boss got in there, then he'd say, you know, you really want to do this? So gray mail does work. 
but you really have to have the goods for it to work. I think that he overplayed his hand. That's um, what I think. He also, I think they got tired of him. Yes, and he was very loud, very vocal, very public. Well, it's not, you do that, you absolutely destroy any chance you have of actually getting something for your gray mail. That's the problem with that. I mean, you've got to do it quietly. You've got to handle it because people are afraid of you and you, you've got to keep that fear up. Yeah, I think that he kind of realized that he didn't know who to call and they stopped calling him. So he started giving very public interviews to people like Forrest Sawyer. And in one interview for a Georgia station, he bragged that he had flown over Reagan giving a speech and could have dumped a bale of marijuana and had it land at his feet. (laughs) Well, then he was just out of control, it sounds like. Yeah, which would, back to what you were saying, he was probably panicked at that point that he didn't have any protection and that he had alienated any chance of having it, so thought if he made a public enough stink. Right, I think he thought he knew something that was valuable. It was less valuable than he thought it was, and he never knew who really recruited him, which was quite common, by the way. So in terms of the basic broad stroke outline of this, of having a former airlines pilot claim that he had been approached and was... Absolutely, absolutely credible. That's credible. All that makes absolute sense. Which leads us back to the mysterious Morgan Cherry, a man Chester claimed first approached him in an Atlanta airport. Chester claimed when he testified at the inquiry in the Bahamas after the 1983 Brian Ross report aired, they Mm -hmm. put together that inquiry. Morgan Cherry's name comes up in the inquiry where Effley Bailey is questioning and Chester claimed that Morgan Cherry told him that he was the informant. Morgan Cherry claimed to be a person who had helped trigger the NBC broadcast to begin with and whose clients were profit by an investigation. Did anything strike you as interesting in what you had the chance to scan in terms of the Bahamas and Pendling? Well, Pendling worked for the agency. And my guess is what happened was he started working for some other drug dealers. The money was too good. And the agency didn't want to deal with him anymore. I mean, it it really had the ring of just wanting to get rid of him. He was just too public. That's exactly what my take is. Yeah, you're right. And that lawyer, by the way. Nigel Bowe. Oh, man, what a piece of... Francis Nigel Bowe. I looked him up. What a piece of work he was. I mean... Look, all the money laundering the agency did was all all in the region of the Bahamas and the Caicos and, and so forth. This is where we set up all these offshore accounts. If I were you, I'd really focus on the Morgan Cherry stuff. On the final episode of Murder in Miami, Clay Williams' files are found. It gives the horrifying look of a torso that has been mutilated by alligators and the legacy of Lamar Chester continues to reverberate. It was down in Key Largo that Lamar shows up. Ending in a surprising twist for all involved. What a rat. What a rat. 
Murder in Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Executive producers are Lauren Bright Pacheco, Taylor Shacoin, and Phil Stanford. Written by Phil Stanford and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Audio editing and sound design by Nicholas Harder, Evan Tyre, and Taylor Shacoin. Featuring music by Evan Tyre, Phil Mayer, John Murchison, and Taylor Shacoin. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get the stories that move you. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.